Hi, this is attorney Paul DeLauri with the Sudden Wealth Podcast, where we talk about how families and business owners can protect their assets and empower their children to be responsible stewards of their wealth. And the co-host is Mike Zalno. Uh, hey there, Michael. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, today, we're talking to an academically trained philosopher who inherited money and gave it all away. And by the way, he also has uh, written a book that I've, I have here, um, and uh, very interesting. Maybe you can talk about that in just a little bit. But about a month ago, I bumped into uh, Jeremy Sherman on the internet, and he describes himself as a science researcher and writer on the origins of life, human nature, and total jerks. <laughs> He's the author, again, of this book, Neither Ghost Nor Machine, uh, The Emergence of Nature and Selves, and I have a feeling this conversation is going to be really interesting. So lean forward and listen carefully. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. <laughs> Very good. Nice to see you. So, yeah. Hi, hi Jeremy. Hi, Michael. Hi, all. <laughs> so, yeah, Jeremy, I, I picked up a copy of your book. And first of all, I have to say that it's un unusual and that you actually try to get to the truth of, well, I... I the truth of something through actually <laughs> <laughs> through actually applying logic and that's analytical a, thinking. That's as a, a great title for a book, The Truth of Something. <laughs> yeah. <like> that. <laughs> well, it, I mean, because it, it's so easy to put out a book nowadays. And, yeah. uh, and they're, you know, basically, I mean, the easy way is you, you ghostwrite something or you dictate something while you're on the toilet and then you have some someone transcribe it and turn it into a book and it's it's not it, nothing more than a bunch of like just random thoughts and i well that okay <laughs> i might be overstating my case there but I, what i do mean is that your your book is actually extremely um analytical uh i can tell that you're academically trained and and so for for anyone who actually wants to like <laughs> to know the truth of something. <laughs> yeah, of something. Well, well, I, okay, for a lay person. No, yes, I, I, simply put, it's yeah. a book on a question that's often evaded by scientists. What's trying and how did it start? Computers don't try. Inanimate things don't try. Organisms try, and they tried, the very first organism tried. That's called the struggle for existence. And uh, people these days tend to assume that Darwin explained it. No, he didn't. You need the struggle for existence for evolution to happen. So what is trying and how did it start? And uh, and I should clarify a couple of things. First of all, I, I, um, I didn't give it all away. I gave it all away, but there was more to come. So I live off my inheritance. You don't make money in this line of work. I mean, I, I spent three years writing that book at least, and um, I probably have made 1500 on it. And my dad was actually, I, at one point I asked my dad, why did he give us money? Um, and he said, because the, the, the important work in the world doesn't pay well. He says, money goes to people who money flows through. That is anybody who's in the supply chain, uh, supply and demand chain can, can, skim off money. He and my father, he and my grandfather had founded Midas Mufflers. Mm. Um, so that's where the money came from. But he said that to me shortly before he died. He died at 59. And, um, and I think that ended up being my guiding principle. But yes, at the age of 20, I did give away all the money I had. And then when, uh, and joined a commune. 
and left the commune in part motivated by my grandfather saying, I've got another million dollars aside for Jeremy, but uh, I can't give it to the commune. I can see what, I, I, you know, if he ever leaves. And at that time, I have spent most of my life in, you could say, environmental activism, uh, nonprofits, public policy, all of that. That was my first career. Um, and I realized I'd have more leverage with his money off the commune. So I left it and was for a while giving away a quarter million a year. Um, unlike a lot of people, I was quite obsessed with the inequality and the vocational derailment I got having received money, more money than I could spend at the age 16. So, so that was my initial response. It was to, just to balk and say, Either I have to prove as important as Martin Luther King uh, to justify this money, or I have to give it away, is how I felt at, at age 20. And how do you feel about having done that now? Um, uh, uh, I've wasted my whole life learning, uh, things, <laughs> learning things I now already know. Um, at one point, my dad did take me aside and say, uh, you're giving away a lot of it. You don't have that much. Um, and he was right. My smug answer back was, well, how much do I have? And in a way, I did start to pay attention to finances and, and how to manage it. Um, but uh, but I, haven't, I have what Warren Buffett suggests. I have enough that I can do anything, but not enough that I could do nothing. And um, what's happened to me is I've really ended up deciding that of all the discretionary freedom I've got what I really want to do is be taking careful notes on reality and us in it. And that's what my work ends up being. And I adore it. And, um, and I get to collaborate with uh, top flight academics. I'm really what you'd call a gentleman scholar or a gent scholar. Um, that's where I ended up settled. And, um, but I get to work with hyper rigorous guys who keep me, um, keep me honest and have given me a whole perspective that is reflected in that book. I mean, yeah, whether it's whether we're right or not is another question, but at least uh, there's a rigor and care in how we think things through. Um, I'm not just rationalizing a bunch of gut intuitions or revelations that I've had. This is this is a different kind of work. So I, I, <laughs> I have a follow up question, please. Um, how how do you maintain your uh what enthusiasm for life or like why for for lack of a better word how do you keep why do you keep trying or what motivates you to to work as hard as it seems like you work when you don't have to work oh um so i have relatives who don't have to work and don't work and for whatever reason from fairly early on that creeped me out I couldn't bear it. Um, I've even noticed subtle aversions to or disdain for relatives who do that um, and then realize, no, that's just me projecting. I would break out in a rash if I lived that life. It's scary to me. I, I have to keep working. And oddly, the commune, we, we associate communes with uh, free love and all sorts of things like this. This was not that kind of commune. It was truly a boot camp for me. So I'd come out of a fairly cushy life, uh, Jewish liberal life. I went to UC Santa Cruz uh, at a time when you could get five units of university credit for keeping a dream journal. I mean, it was, it was a silly time. And so I go off to this commune where the rule was, if someone asked you to do something, you just do it. 
and I was doing manual labor for five years in rural Tennessee. It was the world's largest hippie commune. It was 1,400 members. It, I was completely celibate for the first three years. You weren't allowed to have sex unless you were engaged to be married. They called us the Technicolor Amish. We were, we were extremely strict um, about our tribal ways. We smoked a lot of pot. We didn't drink any alcohol, but we were, but we were hardworking. You worked just all day long. And to do that during your formative years, the teen years, to really be pressed to see what your outer limits are, I think is fabulous. Um, and anyway, one way or another, I just couldn't, I, I get creeped out. I, you know, my research colleague, my research colleague, a uh, Harvard Berkeley neuroscientist says, uh, the self-employed have an idiot for a boss. Um, and, um, and so knowing that, I have cultivated an inner whip. That is nothing, I am not obligated to produce anything, but I employ a kind of strategic gullibility to keep myself working. By that, I mean, I assume that there's pressure on me to produce that there isn't, um, but that's okay. That's my strategic gullibility. I'm trying to convince myself and it's quite successful. But on top of that, my work is a blast. I cannot distinguish between work and play. I, I actually do this work play seven days a week. I mean, I'm, 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 because it's just too much fun. I'm having a great time. <laughs> so, and that's the, that's the luck. It's two lucks. It's one is the freedom to keep on. And this is something an inheritance can provide the freedom to try out things longer than most people get to. Um, and then to luck into an, a bottomless inbox. So my happiness comes from having work for which I have infinite patience. And that's, that's the luck I, of, of being this kind of inheritor. You know, my, my comment would be that, you know, we think of work, you know, having to work, but from what it sounds like is that you're not working. You're, you're having a, a lot of fun and enjoying the intellectual challenges, et cetera, of doing something you really like. Most people that work are not necessarily doing what they like. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, so people who, people who retire end up with a lot of free space and um, some have trouble. Be, I mean, I, I have an entire lifetime. I never worried about paying bills, even on the commune. Um, but, uh, but I have an entire life of, of looking around for what really motivates me to work on and then uh succumbing to it and actually i would say that that happened at around the age 40 around age 40 um i rem i remembered what buckminster fuller said was which was what were you about to do before they told you you had to go out and make a living and up until then even though like i said there was a vocational derailment for me getting the money at 16 and no longer feeling the pressure to earn a living um i i somehow interpreted my inheritance as a huge burden to do some kind of work and not other kinds of work. And only at around 37, maybe, uh, yeah, around 37, a midlife crisis, actually, did I get around to what am I good for? Set aside what I should do for my status. What am I particularly adept at doing? Where, where could I best use myself? Because using myself is the, you know, being useful with what I've got doing the most with what I'm dealt turns out to be the greatest sort of source of satisfaction for me. Um, 
And it only, it, it took me until, I'm 65 now, it took me until about five years to realize that I didn't need status. You need status if, it, if status is how you're going to put money on the table, uh, put food on the table. But if you've got money, you actually don't need status. You can have what my dad called the courage of your insignificance. Um, and so at that point, I, I even stopped worrying about status. I mean, I, 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 I like it when I've got audience, but my audience is limited. My stuff is a little um, unfamiliar is what I would say. It's not especially difficult. It's just unfamiliar to a lot of people. But I've got a fan base. You know, I've got my 15 people of fame. Um, so... Uh, enough to keep me going and I don't have to worry about status as much. I get to be a mouth that actually academics don't. A Gen Scholar can, you know, I generated an article yesterday, an idea for an article yesterday, published it as a blog article, have already hundreds of responses to it. I get a kind of feedback academics don't. Um, you know, I get, I get to, I, they'll work a year and a half on an article that gets read by 20 people. That's, that's the state of things in academics right now. Hmm. Well, I, I like how you answered a question that I had, have, um, I, I hope it, I did. in a way <laughs> without using the word. So uh, I, I think an unspoken question that a lot of people have is what's my purpose? Why am I here? And yeah. you never, you never said the word purpose anywhere in anything that you said, but you answered the question. Like, like, how yeah, can the, you use your experience for the best, uh, the best of the world, or to? Yeah. Well, actually, it, it, it's it's actually quite interesting this way. Everybody's obsessed with themselves and their purposes, what they should try to do. Well, it turned out my purpose was to understand scientifically what purpose is. The technical name for it is teleology. It's uh, end-directed work, uh, means to ends work. Well, so I, end, I ended up stumbling into the company of a guy who had just begun, he had just finished writing a masterful book on the origins of language in humans. He was a Harvard neuroscientist at the time, and he had turned his attention to explaining purpose. That's what trying is about. You know, you're trying to do things because you have an aim, a goal, an end. So it turned out that my purpose was to try and figure, roll up my sleeves and figure out what purpose is from its origins in chemistry, because chemistry itself is purposeless. Okay. That's where I was. Yeah. So I, I, I want to point out something, though. Uh, and this seems to always happen when people start talking about purpose. Uh, so you decided what your purpose was. It's yes. not a, it's not a God-given universe, whatever no, given I, thing. I, no, I play with the irony of the uh, uh, my God-given purpose that I made up for myself. Right. No, I, and in fact, I don't think there's a meaning of life. I think life is full of meaning. One of the ways one of my research colleagues says it is that purpose is real, but has no original or ultimate purpose. That is, I assume that purpose emerges from chemistry in this neck of the woods about 10 billion years after the universe started. And that purpose is real. It really does change things that happen. So in that sense, it exists. But I've spent all this time explaining what purpose is. That includes, every, I mean, the whole suite of things we associate with life, and you can never talk about in physics and chemistry, purpose aims, goals, trying, motivation, appetite, all of that is purpose language. 
And you can't bring it up in physics. If a, if a if physics professor said the moon pulls on the, on the tides because it's trying to achieve something, we'd think he was nuts. But a biologist and a, and a, a social scientist has to talk that way. So what is purpose and how does it start becomes the question. But, and no, I didn't know. There is no, I mean, I happen to be an atheist, but in this line of work, you would be an atheist. You know, you're, you're assuming that there was no purpose, no original purpose, that there's nothing guiding you because you have to explain. And therefore the burden is on the sciences to explain how it comes out. Right. Otherwise you get into a circle, circular um, right, that's right. Reason. Yeah, or yeah. or worse. I mean, a lot of my work these days is in a field I call psychoproctology, and it's people <laughs> and it's people playing God or God's emissary. Uh, emissary. That is, and they think you can do this secularly. It doesn't matter what you what you claim, but basically, you're 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 playing the humble authority on everything in this world. And you can do this for communism. You can do it for what? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you're doing it for. Um, that's all just window dressing, but but this business of assuming you've got a bead on what reality wants of you, and that you're just the humble servant of it while you go around arrogantly telling everybody how to live, that's a focus in psychoproctology. <laughs> <laughs> I, I use the term BS, but that's a <laughs> right. And you yeah. know that you know that philosophers have written about the difference between BS and lying. Yes. You have seen that difference. Yes. It's yes. an important difference. It is an important difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think Frankfurt. a lot of people have no idea about that. No, yeah. that's right. Nor do they need to. If you, I mean, you can, yeah. you can oscillate between the two fluidly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But actually, like... uh, sorry, there, I want to make one connection to, from between inheritance and BS. Um, I'm fascinated by the strategies by which people cope with inheritances. I mean, after all, it was a big burden in my life. But I happened to grow up in a time when we were paying a lot of attention to inequality in, in a time and a culture. I mean, my and also my dad was sort of a leader in that movement. He while he was the president of Midas Mufflers, he was hanging out with the Chicago Seven, Saul Alinsky, Jesse Jackson and Ralph Nader. They were mm. dinner guests at the house. So I was completely aware of inequality. Now, what they say about fascism is that fascism generally starts with the haves coming up with a rationalization for why they are the haves. And they are often that it's preordained that I was fated to be the person who has this stuff. I'm entitled to it. I deserve it at some cosmological level. Um, I think that's really dangerous. Uh, and there are other coping strategies, um, including just the simplistic one, which says I have it and it's mine and the world's unfair. And so I enjoy it. I mean, that that can work for some people. It wouldn't have worked for me. I was an anxious bunny growing up and uh, and very anxious about inequality. Hmm. So, Jeremy, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Yeah, they can find way too much of me, but all in accessible form at my website, jeremysherman.com. It's not fully built out, but the media page is, and I'm in all the mediums. So I've got three podcasts going, um, one of them being uh, this one on psychoproctology, one being debates between me and myself and uh, uh, Jeremy Sherman, PhD, and Jeremy Sherman, GED, having it out. Um, <laughs> and, and one of them being a term, uh, term of the day kind of a thing called to name it is to tame it, uh, 
terms for reading between the lines with greater comprehension. Um, but I have YouTube videos on psychoproctology. I've got YouTube videos on this origins of life research. Um, and if you just look up Jeremy Sherman online, again, you'll find way too much of me. And Facebook Perfect. friend me too. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very accessible. <laughs> very good. And we'll have a <laughs> good, we'll have a link in our show notes also. And so this actually leads me to a, a question of the week, which good. is, uh, I don't know, what is your purpose? Or as Jeremy says, what is your God given purpose that you've decided? That so. you made up. So that's your question <laughs> for the, the, for the listeners, right? That's the question for the listener. Yeah. Excellent. And, yeah. 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 And so we'll have a, a link in the show notes where you can go and, and uh, respond to that. So um, that does it for this episode of the Sudden Wealth Podcast. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that's it. Uh, very good. Thank you so much for being on, Jeremy. Uh, it was a pleasure to be with you. Uh, take care and we'll talk again, perhaps. I, I hope so. Okay. All right.